All right, this week, we are, we're actually back in the Gospels. My, my last four weeks of, of uh, uh, off and on uh, attendance from, uh, from the kidney stones and stuff has just thrown everything into whack in regards to the lectionary trek. So we finished the Joseph story last week, kind of jumping back in uh, on the lectionary text this week in Matthew 20. Um, for what was at one point, and for a long time in my life, maybe my least favorite parable of Christ. Uh, and now, uh, honestly, it's probably my favorite and uh, one of the things I like most about it is if, if a parable is intended to come alongside our lives and, and shine some lights on something we didn't notice before, I think this parable succeeds wildly. Um, in fact, parable, para, balo, means alongside and throw. It means you, it's a story you throw alongside your life to help understand uh, your own existence a, a little better. And I think this, this is one of those parables, it's almost a Rorschach test, like an ink block test, where like, how we read it and how it makes us feel is probably telling us more about ourselves than the actual ink plot, right? So uh, I'm going to go ahead and read through this. Uh, Matthew 20, uh, verses 1 through 16. And uh, I forgot to write down what page it is in the Pew Bible if you want to follow along. But there is the big giant screen behind me as well, which uh, should help. So here we go. Uh, Matthew 20. There's a parable of Jesus. It starts like this. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius for the day, that's, a very, that's an average day's work. That gets your family through the day. It's kind of would have been a very normal pay. Agreeing with the laborers for denarius for the day, he sent them into his vineyard. When he went out about 9 o'clock, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And he said to them, You also go into the vineyard, and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. When he went out again about noon, and about three o'clock, he did the same. And about five o'clock he went out and found others standing around. And he said to them, why are you standing here idle all day? They said to him, because no one has hired us. He said to them, you also go to my vineyard. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his manager, call the laborers and give them their pay, beginning with the last and then going to the first. Those who were hired about five o'clock came and each one of them received a denarius. And when they received, uh, and each one of them received a denarius. Now when the first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And when they received it, they grumbled against the landowner, saying, these last worked only one hour, but you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But when he replied, but he replied to one of them, friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give this last the same as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or are you envious because I'm generous? So the last will be first, and the first will be last. For the word of God in Scripture, for the word of God among us, for the word of God within us, thanks be to God. All right, so this is a controversial parable. Uh, every few years, I get to go back and reread all my commentaries and all the stuff on it, and I forget how wide a variety there is of uh, interpretations of what's going on here. On one extreme, uh, there are some folks who look at this parable, and they think of it as it's, a, as an, it's intent to be a critique of the entire unjust labor system of the day, right? Uh, the owner is kind of the bad guy in this scenario. The owner is playing with the lives of those who have no choice but to work for him, he's intentionally rubbing his power in their face of those who have no other options. 
He pays people in the order he does and the way he does to kind of humiliate the people who are there in the morning. And it just pulls a curtain back on this injustice of the dominant system of the day. And that is certainly one way to read this. It's not the way I read it, but I have been known to be wrong, you know, 70 or 80% of the time. So maybe I'm wrong, but uh, that's one way people read it, right? Others think it's actually kind of telling the history of God's salvation plan in some ways. Like God's chosen people, Israel, have been here since the beginning, and uh, they've always been a part of things. Now the Gentiles are being included in the kingdom of God, and it's hard for the Jews to accept that the Gentiles are getting in on the same thing they've been in on since the beginning, and it's kind of telling that whole story. Of course, that doesn't really paint uh, the Jewish folks in a very positive light. Uh, There's been some kind of anti-Semitic tones to that sometimes when people interpret it that way. But technically, yes, that could be a way we look at it too, right? I get how you get to those conclusions in this parable. I know kind of what the logic is to get there, but I don't believe... Uh, and either of those as really being the point of what's happening here. Uh, We want to remember that Jesus here is in the middle of a series of teachings about the kingdom of God, about this weird, backwards, subversive, upside-down kingdom that he is creating that is near and is coming at the same time, right? Jesus constantly compares the kingdom of God to something or someone that makes little sense and upsets people, right? It upsets the common knowledge of the hearers on what seems like common sense. Jesus likes to do that, and I think that's what he's doing here. And I think part of what this story is intended to do, uh, intending to do, is what it accomplishes so brilliantly, which is I don't think anyone hears this story and doesn't on some level get at least a little annoyed. Because this is a story that is patently unfair. It's just unfair. And what is more important to us than being fair, right? How many times a day, parents, do you hear that is not fair? It is the original cry of injustice in this world for every child. That's not fair. And they say it so often and with such conviction, even when they don't even understand what it means. Ever since Lillian was little, if you played shoots and ladders with her, and I happened the one out of ten times it seemed to happen to me. I don't know how she beat me so consistently. It doesn't make sense because there's no anything to that game but luck, but she would flip heads every time somehow. But every once in a while, I'd get the big ladder. I'd get that big ladder. She'd be way ahead, but I'd shoot all the way up to the top, and I would win shoots and ladders. And I wasn't doing anything I wasn't supposed to do. I was spinning just like she was spinning. But when I got the big ladder, that's not fair. That would be her outcry. And I would sit and explain to her justice and fairness and how all of it works like a good parent does to correct her in the error of her uh, judgments, and I would tell her that that actually is very fair, and she would say, that's not fair. And it was actually what she called everything she didn't like, right? I can't have a cupcake for dinner? That's not fair. Uh, Today, I don't get a $50 Stanley cup to drink water out of at school like some of the other kids do? That's not fair. Oh, that's fair. It's very, very fair that I don't spend $50 on a cup But it's a grand injustice, right? From the onset for us, we have this strong sense of something needs to be fair, and this violates that. Now, for kids, they may not totally understand what fair means, but when something truly isn't fair, when we as adults know the more important things in this world that are not fair, it is hard to live with, isn't it? I mean, forget shoots and ladders and something that's not all that important, but when it's a real injustice, it cuts deep. 
For instance, in 2003, an undefeated Miami Hurricanes were playing the Ohio State Buckeyes in the national championship. And Michael and John Dixon, lifelong fans who had attended games, got to go to Arizona to watch Miami win the national championship. It was a great moment for us. There was only a couple of us Hurricane fans in a literal stadium full of Ohio State Buckeyes, obnoxious Ohio State Buckeyes. <laughs> On what was uh, truly the last play of the game, an Ohio State player, while they were down by a touchdown, dropped a ball in the end zone, on fourth down, and our Miami Hurricanes begun to run onto the field to accept their national championship. We were getting to witness it. It was glorious. It was the kingdom of heaven come to earth. Until an unjust judge <laughs> in black and white stripes throws a flag and calls pass interference. Was it the judge next to the play? No, it was the guy on the other side of the field. Did he, could he see the play where he was from? No, he could not. Was our guy half laying on the ground when he was apparently supposed to be committing this foul? Yes, he was. Did a defensive lineman hit the ball as it was thrown, making pass interference an impossible call to make? Yes. Yes, all these things were true. And yet, injustice prevailed. And this national championship was handed to the Ohio State Buckeyes. Now, obviously, I'm over this. And I didn't rewatch the play this week and get equally as viscerally mad as I did 20 years ago. And I definitely haven't been rooting against Ohio State in every sport and every game they played since. I'm not that petty. Maybe. But when something isn't fair, whew, man, it eats you up, doesn't it? You've been there. You know what I'm talking about. And so Jesus tells this story to intentionally provoke our sense of injustice. We get triggered by the story, and we think about the coworker who got credit for your work. We think about how underpaid we are for the stuff that we are doing. We think about the referee who was obviously paid by someone in Ohio. We think about all these injustices in the world, right? Because the story is fundamentally unfair. On what planet is it okay to pay the people who worked one hour the same as those working all day? How is this any way to run a business? I mean, if you really ran a vineyard like this, how would you get anything of value done? What happens the second day when everyone knows this is how you work? Aren't you de-incentivizing good things like hard work and dedication? Despite... Uh, the fact that all of us who are adults and have been around long enough understand that really nothing is totally fair in this world. That's not how this world works. We still hold it to such an, as such a deep-seated value and ideal that stories like this make our skin crawl just a little, even if we know we're supposed to like it because Jesus said it. And so what do you do with this kind of story? The question we should ask here is the question that we should ask each week as we're looking at scriptures. Each day, as hopefully maybe you're looking at scriptures on your own, is what exactly is the good news here? Where's the good news in this? And it's not always easy to find, I'll be honest. You're going to be in Judges at some point and read about a guy who cuts his concubine into 12 pieces and mails them to all 12 tribes of Israel, and it's hard to find the good news in that story, right? But where is the good news here? Again, this is probably my least favorite parable until something that I read one time kind of flipped a new lens through which I could view it. 
And I believe it was a fabulous preacher and theologian named Barbara Brown Taylor. I can't remember what book it was from. I believe it was a sermon of hers that I read someplace. And she was writing about this scene, and it just kind of flipped the lights on for me. And basically what she said, she said it much more eloquently. I just couldn't find it this week. But basically what she said is the only reason this story feels like bad news and the only way the story is bad news is if I assume that I am the early morning worker. The only reason this feels like bad news is because I'm assuming that I'm the early morning worker. The image I have of myself is that I'm one of the good guys. I'm one of the hard workers, right? I'm, the ones who get, I'm one of the ones that gets there on time, works hard all day, sweats in the heat of the day, and I am getting what I deserve for my efforts when I get that denarius at the end of the day. I'm the early morning worker because, as it turns out, I'm the hero of all my stories, right? That's how it works. I'm the hero of all my stories, and I tell myself that I'm the kind of employee everyone dreams about. I stay there. I'm committed. I'm energetic. I'm sincere. I'm an early morning worker. So I'm throwing the flag on this story. Unfair. Now, to view this story from that position is something that I think all of us on some level do. I hope I'm not the only one. That's what triggers my sense of injustice. But of course, this is to forget one of the main tenets of our faith and our theology, and that is the idea of grace. The idea that all good things that we experience are, in fact, a gift from God. That it's all grace. Everything good in my life is a gift from a generous God. Now, I'm not saying that you're a lowly worm that deserves nothing and how could God love you and any of that kind of stuff that is a theology some of us grew up with. I'm not saying that you only deserve suffering and damnation, none of those things. But every good gift comes from God's hand. It's a gift. I'm no better and I'm no worse than anyone else. At the end of the day, creation itself is an act of grace. Life itself is not something I chose or earned. It was given. It's a gift. The fact that you are sitting here right now is an expression of God's grace. We are all last-hour workers. And the good news of the parable is that God isn't fair. God is generous. I mean, consider who is left at the end of the day in this scenario. Who is it that's still standing out there at 5 p.m. and has not been hired? Now, there's a chance that there's some really great workers, maybe, who are left because there was more workers than there was work. But there's also a pretty good chance that the people who are left are the people that no one wants. Maybe they're a little too old. Maybe they're infirmed in some way. Maybe they were injured on the job before and can't work as long or as hard as someone else. Maybe there's other kind of circumstances that keep them from getting to the marketplace to get hired earlier than anyone else. Maybe it takes them a long time to even get there that day. The, one that no, the ones that no one wants. These are the last picks in PE class. And the owner goes out and hires those ones. At the end of the day, when they really can't do much to further the goal in any real way, the owner still goes out says, I want you in my vineyard, gives them a purpose and a job to do. I think this is an expression of the fact that while we determine who is worth something and who is not, 
who belongs and who does not. God does not go by our sense of values or rankings that we come up with. God doesn't live by our sense of justice and rankings and all those things. Now, it doesn't happen often, but I actually really love the other verses that the lectionary chose for this week. Uh, Kudos to Jennifer for getting really long readings tonight that she had to do, and she did a great job. But both the other stories from the Old Testament fit perfectly with this parable to me. And, and you heard her, uh, I won't reread them because she did a better job of reading them than I will. But we have two different stories. The first one is the story of the manna uh, for the Israelites who have just escaped um, from being slaves in Egypt. And now God is going to spend the next 40 years in the desert trying to teach these people how to not be slaves in the world anymore, right? He's rescued them from Egypt and from slavery, and now he's trying to get the slavery in Egypt out of them. And one of the ways he does that is through manna. It's one of the ways that God is working to change this group of people into something else, to remove from them the faulty idea that they are only worth what they produce in a world that will happily consume them and disregard them. A kingdom where the value was in how long and how hard they could labor on behalf of others. And then instead what they have, instead of slavery, which is what they've experienced for generations, instead, every day, daily bread on the ground, free for the taking. Every day, grace and gift. Everyone gets it. No one gets to collect extra. If they do, it starts to stink up their tent. No one gets to advance above anyone else or fall behind. Everyone has what they need from the hand of God. It's all a gift. They're all paid the same. It's all a gift. It's all grace. You get it because you exist, and you warrant it because God declares you to be beloved and gives it to you. The story of manna. Then you have the great ending to the book of Jonah, which is one of my favorite books in the Bible, uh, because Jonah is a hot mess. Jonah is told to go preach to the Ninevites. He hates the Ninevites for some good reasons. He says, I'm not going. He tries to escape. He ends up in the water. A whale swallows him. Then we pick up after the whale has vomited him up. And God once again says, how about now? You want to go to Nineveh now? And Jonah, uh, against his better judgment through gritted teeth, says, yes, I will go. And then, and I, I love this in the book, Jonah's attitude never changes after all that. He goes to Nineveh, and Jonah preaches the shortest sermon in history. It's less than 10 words. You should read it. He goes into the, into the kind of the public area of Nineveh. He says less than 10 words, probably quietly, so that maybe no one will hear him, because he doesn't want the Ninevites to be saved. He hates them. He gives a 10-word sermon, and he is the most radically successful prophet in all of Scripture. The entire nation repents. The whole nation hears the less than 10-word sermon and changes their ways, sackcloth and ashes, repents, and God relents from punishing them because they repent. And when Jonah sees that his sermon worked and that they repent, he throws the hissy fit of all hissy fits. He literally says, I want to die. I'd rather die than see this happen. He wants to die. He asks God to kill him because Jonah can't conceive, he can't imagine God loving or valuing a bunch of last-hour workers like the Ninevites? How can they possibly get paid the same? Those are great scriptures with this parable. All of today's scriptures are about human beings to varying degrees of success and failure, trying to come to grips 
with the nature and prevalence of God's generosity? And what does it mean for our preconceived notions of fairness and our ideas of justice? The theme is throughout Scripture. Honestly, it runs throughout my life as well. Uh, the pastor's group that meets each week as we were talking about this, and we, were, we had a good live discussion this week about this uh, parable, I commented to the pastor's group that I don't think it would be much of an overstatement, for me personally, not projecting on you, it probably wouldn't be much of an overstatement to say that most uh, of what uh, I get mad at in my life or is a, is a large frustration in my life boils down to this very incorrect posture towards God and even my own life. I really do spend an inordinate amount of my time stamping my feet before the giver of all good things, having shown up at 5 o'clock and yelling, unfair. Deep down, if I'm honest with you, I still think I'm owed something. I literally, it's like cliche, I would cross it out if someone had written in a movie. When I was rolling around and moaning from kidney stones a couple weeks ago, I literally said to God, why me? I was in a lot of pain and on drugs, but <laughs> it's also a little telling, right? I am God's special snowflake. I am an early morning worker. I'm a minister as unto the Lord. Why me? How can this happen to me, right? It's part of our human nature, I, I believe. I think we've all got that. I kicked the dirt like the first hour worker, except I just showed up. Except I know that deep down, I am far from a star employee that I imagine myself to be. That I am one of the last picks, and yet I'm still chosen. Truth is that God has not been fair to me. Thank God. God has been generous. And when I can actually wrap my dull and indignant brain around that truth, everything is just a little bit better better, healthier, happier lens through which to view my own life and the world around me. Now that is in no way to suggest that suffering is not real and justice is not real in the world, that there's not things we don't raise our hand and stamp our feet and cry foul on. We do. Obviously there is real tragedy, real pain, real suffering, and real injustice in this world that we should not get comfortable with. The world is broken and in need of redemption. We know this. But the only way I can figure out to somewhat successfully navigate this mess is to remain vividly aware of God's free and bountiful grace, of which I've already received much. It's to have a posture of gratitude and celebration for myself and for everyone else, even those I don't really care for sometimes. It's to constantly remember the good news that God is not fair. God is generous, and that is nothing to be mad at. Let's pray. God, we are um, we're grateful for the good news uh, that you are not a God who by our definitions is fair or even just by our definitions. that you do not run your vineyard the way we feel like it should be run. God, we are grateful that for all of our flaws, for all of our weaknesses, for all that falls short within us, 
that you are a God who chooses us, who brings us into your vineyard, who gives us a purpose, who graces us with gifts. That we are grateful that you are a generous God. We ask that as we um, accept this, as we choose this as the lens through which we view our own lives and the world that we live in, that we might then reflect that same generosity to a world that needs it so much. Lord, we do love you. We ask all these things in your name. Amen.